Hello, and welcome to the Michigan Murders. I'm Laura. And I'm Stephanie. I don't even know what to do with myself right now anymore. (laughs) Seems. I don't know. I am so tired all the time. It's been a long day. And, yeah. I've never been diagnosed, but at this point, I'm like, a little bit, a little bit depresso. I don't know. I'm having... Uh well, those periods of time where I'm like, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to go anywhere. I want to sit in a quiet room. <laughs> and that's, oh, and I'm diagnosed. so tired. And I'm tired. I was diagnosed as a teen. Oh. That's the fun stuff. They're like, let's just shove all these different pills at you and see which ones work. One almost made me become somebody on this podcast. Wow. <laughs> to myself. <laughs> so that would have been very dark and so my mom was like nope you're getting off of that immediately because it made me way worse yeah there's it doesn't happen very often but every once in a while i'm like i just want to sleep for a day (laughs) probably probably closer to like situational depression maybe or something maybe i don't know i don't know i'm just very tired and i don't want to do anything ever i haven't felt like cooking dinner so I had uh, mac and cheese. <laughs> Velveeta is the good stuff. You know what? I have some. I have some in my pantry, and now I want it. It was delicious. So, after we record tonight, <laughs> I'll be having shells and cheese as well. <laughs> is it the Velveeta? Is it the liquid gold? The liquid gold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I had a guy um, park so unbelievably close to my truck today. That I could not get inside of it. Oh. There was there was no way. Maybe if you were a small child, you could walk between the vehicles and open the door like a sliver. Like a normal sized human could not even walk between the vehicles oh, when we were leaving school. And I was like, what is this? And I turned to my friend Mary and I was like, do you see this? And she's like, do you know who that is? I'm like, no clue, girl. No clue. So she's like, I'll come with you. So we went inside the school and asked the the owner, principal, whatever you want to call him, um, administrator. I was like, I took pictures and I was like, I don't know if this is a student or if this is from like Office Max or whatever that is next door. He's like, we'll go take a look. And as soon as he comes out, the guy comes and I was like, I'm watching him and he's passing all these other cars. And I'm like, that's going to be, that's going to be the truck owner. And he immediately walks up to his truck and and my administrator was like, oh, so it's you. And the guy's like, oh, is that your vehicle? And I was like, yeah, I, I, I can't get inside. I, we weren't sure if it was a student. And he's like, oh, sorry for parking uh, so close. <laughs> Drives away. I'm like, let me in my vehicle so I can go home. Away. <laughs> yeah. But it always makes me nervous when people park that close because of this podcast. <laughs> like, do I want to make you angry or no? <laughs> like, do I want to say something or do I even want to try to get in my vehicle because then you could come up behind me? <laughs> like, yeah. Mm, I'll just go get someone. <laughs> someone don't watch me trying to get into this vehicle. <laughs> A friend and a taller man. (laughs) Back up. That's it. I mean, I'd be like, also record this because I think it could be funny later. (laughs) Exactly. Is it uh, me first this week? 
I think so. Okay. I thought so. So this one is a little bit all over the place. So this killer goes by many different names. The babysitter killer, the babysitter, the snow murderer. But they are most commonly known as the Oakland County Child Killer. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but to this day, the killer has not been caught. Oh, wow. Yeah. Between February 15, 1976 and March 16, 1977, two boys and two girls, ages between 10 and 12, went missing outside their homes while tra traveling either to or from a different location in Oakland County, Michigan. Each child's body was found in a public place within 19 days of them going missing. The children were all either strangled or shot, with the two boys having been sexually assaulted. Mm. Once the children were killed, their attacker would place their bodies around Oakland County in places where they would be seen from roadways, which was kind of odd to me, like, why he was making it a point. Kind of risky and wanting them to be found. Yeah. Hmm. The four deaths triggered a murder investigation, which at the time was the largest in U.S. history, with Detroit's two daily newspapers, along with the area's many radio, uh, many radio and television stations covering the case, and a presentation on WXYT Radio, called Winter's Fear, The Children, The Killer, The Search. And that even won a Peabody Award in 1977. Huh. This case is quite frankly all over the place. So please bear with me while I try my best to sort through everything in the best way that I can, which is sticking as close to Wiki as I possibly can. <laughs> because it's, it's, there's a lot. It's everywhere. Makes sense. Um. Now, the victims that have been confirmed to have been part of the Oakland County child, murder, uh, child killer murders are Mark's Dougla Mark Douglas Stebbins, this 12-year-old boy of Ferndale, unfortunately didn't return home from an American Legion Hall on February 15, 1976. His body was found four days later, wearing the same clothes he was wearing when he went missing, laying on a pile of wood and dirt in the parking lot of an office building in Southfield. He had been strangled and sexually assaulted with a foreign object oh. and had two lacerations to the back left side of his head. Rope marks were seen on both of his ankles and wrists, indicating that he had been tied up. Jill Robinson... This 12-year-old girl of Royal Oak left her home on December 22nd, 1976, following an argument with her mom over dinner. The next day, her bicycle was found behind a local hobby store, and her body was, ended up being found along, alongside Interstate 75 in Troy, within view of the Troy Police Station, on the morning of December 26th. Oh my gosh even went as far as to putting them by the police station. Yeah. Which is... It's odd. Almost like a catch me. Yeah. She had been shot in the face with a 12-gauge shotgun, and her body was fully clothed and wearing the backpack she had taken with her. 
Autopsy reports revealed that Jill had been fed and cared for for at least three days before she was murdered. Then we have Christine Marie, okay, Milik, Milik. Um, sorry if I got that wrong. This young 10-year-old girl of Berkeley was recorded, reported missing on January 2nd of 1977 after she didn't come home from a 7-Eleven on 12 Mile Road at Oakshire. A mail carrier found her fully clothed 19 days later on the side of a rural road in Franklin Village. She had been smothered to death less than 24 hours earlier and her body lay within view of nearby homes. And then we have, lastly, out of the four, Timothy John King. This little 11-year-old boy left his home in Birmingham uh, and went to go to a pharmacy on the night of March 16, 1977, after he didn't come home, an intensive search covering the entire Detroit metropolitan area was conducted, and that was before his body was found on the evening of March 22nd by two teenagers in a shallow ditch alongside Gill Road in Livonia. He had been sexually assaulted, again with a foreign object, and suffocated approximately Jeez. six hours prior to being found. So he was like, just died. Autopsy results revealed that he had eaten his favorite food, Kentucky Fried Chicken, shortly before his death, and that Timothy was cleaned and groomed before his suffocation. Oh my gosh. Which adds a whole new layer of like, ick. It's so creepy. So weird. There have also been a few suspected victims that have not yet been confirmed. 17-year-old Donna Sarah went missing after hitchhiking to a beach after school in Macomb County on September 29th of 72. Sarah's body was discovered face down in a shallow creek on October 20th in her hometown of Ray Township, close to 27 Mile Road. Before she was murdered, Sarah had been held and drugged for several days. Her cause of death was strangulation and her murder remains unsolved. 13-year-old Jane Louise, uh, known as Janie Allen, went missing on August 8th of 76 and was last seen hitchhiking between, between Pontiac and Royal Oak in Oakland County. Janie was found dead floating in a river in Ohio on August 11th, four days later, over 200 miles away from her Royal Oak home. So either she floated the full 200 miles or someone why would you drive her all the way to ohio that doesn't make sense yeah her wrists had been tied behind her back with torn strips of t-shirt decomposition of the body left police unable to determine whether or not janie had been sexually assaulted but they were able to figure that she had been dead before being dumped in the water janie's cause of death was carbon monoxide poisoning which oh really confused me because normally it's strangulation yeah or smothering something but that one kind of oh. threw me off and then we have 12 year old kimberly alice kim king she disappeared from warren on september 15 of 79 she had stayed over at a friend's house that night and when she called her sister around 11 p.m she claimed to have snuck out of her friend's house and to be calling from a nearby phone booth her sister told her to go back inside. However, Kimberly never made it back to her friend's house and has been missing since. 
Police believe she was kidnapped and that her disappearance is connected to the murders. And now there are some cases that could possibly be part of the murders, but authorities haven't made a connection or they don't think that it is. Patricia Ann Spencer and Pamela Sue Hobley, one 16-year-old and the other 15 years old, were last seen in Escoda, Michigan on October 31st, 1969, the day of their high school's homecoming football game. A passing driver stopped to pick them up and drove them to a gas station at River Road and Interstate 23. They were last seen walking together on River Road away from the school and towards the business district. Both went missing and have not been seen since. A link to the Oakland County child killer has been explored by investigators, though they thought it was unlikely, which I don't know if it's because of their age. Being 15 and 16 seems a little high for what has been confirmed and suspected, but I don't know. We have Laura Wilson, 16. Um, she went to a buy right market in Detroit the evening of November 10 of 72. She arrived at the market but went missing shortly after. On November 10, youngsters in Wayne County discovered her body in bushes not far from her home. So the same day, they found her not far from her home. She had been assaulted and raped. Her head had also been smashed with a brick. Yikes. Evidence in her case was ordered destroyed by police in the late 70s after... What? <laughs> yeah, I said that. Evidence in her case was ordered destroyed by police in the late 70s after authorities reinvestigated her case for links to the Oakland County child killer. So, it was destroyed. The hell? Right. And then on February 2nd, 1977, 10-year-old Valerie Bishop was attacked, raped, and stabbed close to an empty house a short distance from the home she lived in with her family on the west side of Detroit. She had went to a corner store to get milk for her mom, and at the time, the Oakland County Child Killer Task Force was active, but they decided not to look into or um, investigate this murder. As I slow blink and get irritated. Right. She's 10. She's within the age range. She's... It, it makes me... Yeah. Well, I mean... <laughs> I don't know if they think of it as, oh, well, only the boys were assaulted before. That doesn't matter. That doesn't mean things don't change in a case. Like, yeah, that I happens all the time. Well, some of those were all over the place. The methods were different. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know about... So, yeah, that was a lot of just child murders in that period Right, of time. and at first with Valerie, 30-year-old Moses Potter was charged with her murder, but did end up getting released due to a lack of evidence. No one else was ever arrested, and her case remains unsolved. Now, well, let me see here. There are some that were disproved. 16-year-old Judy Farrow was found beaten and strangled on January 1st of 76, at Lola Valley, Valley Park in Redford, Michigan, when she disappeared between midnight and 3 a.m. in the morning from her customer's family home, she had been babysitting the previous night. A Redford Township policeman found Pharaoh's body at 7 a.m. in the morning, fully dressed, when it was learned that Gary Pervinkler, 19, 
had left home at the same night with a gun in his dad's car, he was identified as a prime suspect. So just because he left his house with a gun, it, it was him, they thought. On April 7 of 76, Pervinkler's body was discovered. He had shot himself in the head. The firearm found next to Pharaoh's body, unfortunately, though, did match a bullet casing discovered in the house from where Judy was abducted, and so they closed her case. Oh. It doesn't say that it matched a bullet in her body because she was beaten and strangled. So it's weird to me. Yeah, it's hard to know what to think about some of those. Yeah, Cynthia Ray, or Cindy Kedio, 16, of Roseville, was found beaten to death on January 16 of 76 in Bloomfield Township. Cynthia had been abducted while hitchhiking on the uh, in the 11-mile area of Roseville. And on January, and that was on January 14, 1976, her naked body was found shortly after and she had been tied up, raped, and then beaten to death. In 79, Robert Anglin and Raymond Heinrich were both convicted of her murder. A third individual who had not been named was also involved, but he passed away before their arrest. Both men were sentenced to life in prison. So they think, I'm guessing due to certain things that it, people thought that it could have been linked, but it was disproved. Sheila Srock, 14, was raped and shot while babysitting in Birmingham, Michigan on January 20 of 76. Her killer, Oliver Rhodes Andrews, had burglarized several homes in the neighborhood earlier that night and a neighbor was a witness while shoveling snow in off his roof. Andrew ended up getting sentenced to life imprisonment. So someone did see that one. After the discovery of Milik's body, authorities noticed similarities shared by her case and those of Stebbins and Robinson, and reports were released warning the public that a serial killer was possibly operating in the Oakley County area. The Michigan State Police led that group of law enforcement officials from 13 communities in a formation of a task force devoted solely to investigate these killings. After King disappeared, a woman told police that she had seen a boy with a skateboard, like he was, um, talking to a man in a parking lot of the pharmacy that he had visited that March 16th. A composite drawing of the suspected kidnapper in his blue AMC Gremlin was released. I'm <laughs> not a giggling matter, but the fact that it was a gremlin makes me giggle because that, that is an old vehicle. <laughs> then again, this was back in 77, so... So that would be new at the time. <laughs> could have, yeah, could have very likely been new then. And authorities ended up questioning every gremlin owner in Oakland County, which back then was probably quite a few. I'm, I'm looking at pictures of uh, the gremlin now, and it is something. <laughs> something indeed. It reminds me a little bit of, I don't know if that's like a George Jetson body style. Or like a, um, I don't know what you'd call that. Yeah. Kind of like. It's got the big bubble in the mm -hmm. back. Big old bubble butt. Yeah. Um, 
Investigators created a profile based on the witness's description of the man seen talking to him, a white male aged between 25 and 35 with a dark complexion, shaggy hair and sideburns, who had a job that gave him freedom of movement and made him appear trustworthy to children, was familiar with the area and could keep children captive for long periods of time without rousing neighbors' suspicions. The task force looked into more than 18,000 tips, which resulted in about two dozen arrests on unrelated charges and the discovery of a multi-state child porn ring operated on North Fox Island in Lake Michigan. So as they were trying to investigate this, they found a whole lot more than they bargained for. Holy crap. I didn't know that existed. Right. It's quite intense. The task force was unable to make much headway in the investigation, and they ended up disbanding in December of 1978, with the investigation being turned over to the state police. Some suspects and persons of interest. A few weeks after King's murder, a psychiatrist who worked with the task force received a letter riddled with spelling errors, written by an anonymous author known as Alan claiming to be a sadomasochist slave of the killer, Frank. Allen, quote-unquote, wrote that they had both served in the Vietnam War, that Frank was traumatized by having killed children, and that Frank had taken revenge on more affluent citizens, such as the residents of Birmingham, for sending forces to Vietnam. Allen expressed fear and remorse in his letter, saying he was losing his sanity and was endangered and suicidal, and admitted to having accompanying Frank as he sought out to kill boys. He instructed the psychiatrist to respond by printing the code words, Weather Bureau says trees to bloom in three weeks. Does not make sense. In that Sunday's edition of the Detroit Free Press, before offering to provide photographic evidence in exchange for immunity from prosecution, the psychiatrist arranged to meet with Alan at a bar, but Alan, of course, did not show up and was never heard from again. The whole thing is just crazy, and it sounds like something that would be in a movie. Yeah, absolutely. It's bonkers. There was Archibald Edward Sloan, who was a child molester who victimized young boys in his neighborhood. And he became a person of interest after hair samples found in his 1966 Pontiac Bonneville matched hair found on the bodies of King and Stebbins. But the hair was not from Sloan himself. Which makes me side-eye. A witness claimed to have seen King being abducted by two men. One was described as being in his late 20s and the other was described as bearing a strong resemblance to John Wayne Gacy. Oh. Who was allegedly in Michigan around the time of the killings. Oh. Right. But Gacy's DNA did not match DNA found on the victim's bodies. Oh. So it's kind of like a riddle. You're kind of like confused. Yeah. I would think Sloan, though, was a molester and... The hair samples in his Bonneville match those found from the boys. But it's like, it makes you wonder if he had just like victimized the boys or had been trying to get them to do stuff with him. 
they they had been in his car previously. I I don't know why that wasn't looked into further, which is kind of frustrating. It's the time, I suppose. Yeah. Police in Parma Heights, Ohio, arrested a Mr. Ted Lamborghini. I don't want to say Lamborghini because I don't think that's how you spell Lamborghini. But <laughs> Lamborg- Lamborghini, I'm going to say, who was a, <laughs> which is why I don't want to say Lamborghini. He was a retired auto worker <laughs> involved in a 1970s sex ring that preyed on young boys in Detroit's Cass Corridor. Yuck. Out yeah. of the five men involved in the ring, he was one of the only two living members when they were charged in 2006. He faced 19 counts of sexually assaulting children while his partner in the ring, Richard Lawson, faced 28 similar charges. On March 27 of 2007, investigators told the Detroit television station WXYZ, which is kind of funny to me, (coughs) that he was considered the top suspect in this case. Ted ended up pleading guilty to 15 sex-related counts involving young boys. Rather than accepting a plea bargain, that would have required him to take a polygraph test on the Oakland County killings. Huh. Which makes me a little wondering why he was so opposed to it. If it would have been a plea bargain, you know, and you just take this polygraph, maybe he was afraid that it was going to, like, like, maybe if he didn't do it, he was afraid it was going to be, like, planted, and they were going to say that, oh, you know, you failed this if he didn't. I don't I don't know. Yeah. In October of 2007, the family of Mark Stebbins filed a wrongful death lawsuit against him seeking $25,000. The lawsuit alleges that Ted, who lived in the Metro Detroit area in the late 70s, abducted Stebbins and held him captive in Royal Oak House for four days in February of 76 before smothering him to death during a sexual assault. He has never been formally linked nor charged in the do- divorce or the death of Stebbins. So one of the kids that was murdered in this case, his family just was like, we're seeking a lawsuit without any. Yeah. Like, I understand being upset and wanting something to happen. But at that point with no evidence other yeah. than. Well, that's what they did with OJ. Hard disagree. <laughs> In my opinion, there was lots, and he did it. <laughs> very much did it. Very very much should be in jail. <laughs> but I get it. <laughs> Well, yeah, they weren't able to prosecute, so they sued him. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah, which tends to happen a lot of, in a lot of cases. He is, like I said, he had never been linked nor charged in the death of Stebbins. Attorney D.A. Uh, David A. Binkley has sought compensation, including funeral costs, for Stebbins' brother, Michael, but stressed that money is secondary. Which, to me, wonders, is it? Is it, though? I think if you're that desperate for something to happen to someone. True. I guess I can see how you'd be like, well, I can't get that, but maybe this will... Make up for it. Give me some satisfaction, I guess. I don't know. The case sparked new interest when King's father, Barry, and brother Chris 
try to get the state police to release information about Chris Bush, the son of General Motors executive Harold Lee Bush. Chris Bush had been in police custody shortly before King's abduction for suspected involvement in child porn. He had allegedly committed suicide in November of 78. There was no gunshot residue found on him, though, and no blood spatter. S- uh, what? <laughs> right. It's a little suspicious. Mm-hmm. And the entry wound was between his eyes. Which is not a way you would uh, and, typically do that, I wouldn't right. think. Because, I mean, if, if, sorry, listeners, you can't really see me trying it. But if I put my hand in front of my face, that's a, I mean, I can do it, but that is quite difficult. Especially if you think that you're reaching around something that's going to, you're definitely. Seems like that'd be a two-handed job to be able to hold it steady. Yep, you'd be holding it. So there would definitely be residue. Correct. Sounds like a cover-up to me. Right. Furthermore, there were also four shell casings. Found in his room. He was also found wrapped neatly under his sheets. Right. right. But it's a suicide. Correct. Bloodstained <laughs> ligatures were found in his apartment. <laughs> which. Again, apparent suicide. Um, wow. As was a hand-drawn mis- uh, image of a boy closely resembling Stebbins screaming which was found pinned to the wall there had been no confirmed yeah part part of me is like was that revenge against him for doing that then in which case it's like okay then we'll just call we'll just call it suicide my thing too is like if King's father the little boy's father Barry and Brother Chris were, were doing this, or even were behind it. Um, what you think, like, a drawing of someone resembling that boy would have been pinned? Yeah. Why would they use the other families unless it was something that he had? I don't... I don't know. The, the whole thing is weird. Odd. This weird. whole case is just so strange. Um... There has been no confirmed activity by the Oakland County child killer for nearly 20... Um, there had been, I'm sorry, for nearly uh, 20 months prior to his death. So almost a year, no activity, no confirmed activity. The state police have since released 3,400 pages of records to Barry King, the father. So they have since released quite a lot of pages into their investigation of him, apparently. Hmm. I don't know why that would be given so freely, but okay. There were some, um, again, investigation reports released to the family of the victims. Police reports obtained by Barry King included new revelations, including DNA testing of new suspects and the bloodstain ligature and sketch from Bush's apartment. Again, why is that being given to a family? You would think... Yeah. That is odd. Because if it's an open investigation, they pretty much seal all that Right, stuff. but they 
I remember they claimed it as suicide. Oh, yeah. Even though it was very obviously not suicide. <laughs> I mean... Freedom of information, I guess. A goat that very much does not look like a wolf. I'm going to call it a goat. I'm not just going to call it a wolf. Because you want me to call it a wolf. <laughs> like, I'm not just going to say that's a wolf because that's what you want me to say. Like... <sighs> Catherine Broad, King's sister, compiled an archive of investigation material as the case grew. Upon researching the case records, the King family produced a documentary entitled Decades of Deceit, which condemns the police and prosecutors for their quote-unquote shoddy investigations. That's and uncooperative communication. I mean, I will say, I thought that was very cooperative that they gave you things about an investigation that they really should not have. Because that may have hurt the actual investigation. And in particular, of disregarding leads, the family discovered apparently in 2006, they said. Hmm. I don't know what that is, but funds yeah. generated... From the sale of the documentary were donated to the Tim King Fund, designated to help abuse children and support activities for Birmingham children. Forensic DNA tests conducted in 2012 showed that hair found on the seat of Sloan's car and the bodies of Stebbins and King were a match and came from the same unknown man. The hair DNA does not match Sloan but implicates someone he knew or lent his card to. In 2013, an anonymous informant reported a blue AMC gremlin buried in a farm field now being developed in Grand Blanc. Oh, wow. Right. I wonder. Police are investigating the gremlin for ties to the crime as King was last seen in a blue gremlin, which... Right. In 2005, an unidentified man, these are current developments or after the 2012 case reopening, but in 2005, an unidentified man who would later emerge to become a quite common figure in this case has been known by the alias of just Jeff. <laughs> Jeff. Um, Okay. <laughs> right. He was reminded of a relationship he had in 1977 with a supposed acquaintance. In an interview he gave to the Oakland County investigators in 2010, Jeff informed them of some off observations and actions while driving and um, conversing with the acquaintance, such as taking him to buildings where satanic rituals were allegedly performed. And this acquaintance um, went through lesser-known routes associated with a case with ease. The acquaintance also spoke of details written in Allen's letter. And Jeff requested information about the Allen letter to help confirm his suspicions, but obviously was denied because, again... Those outside the case should not be given things like that. 
in 2010, Jeff was, uh, gave a recorded interview to the investigators and to the prosecutor, Jessica Cooper, to present evidence pertaining to the investigation. He claimed to have tried to approach Cooper with his findings and to convince her to place the case under the jurisdiction of the Department of Justice, also known as the DOJ. The p department was already involved through the FBI and through resources such as VICAP. Cooper dismissed his suggestions and because there was no new evidence presented, his request to inspect the Allen letter was again denied. Uh, Cooper described the interview as a rambling statement outlining a theory that the Oakland County child killer abductions and murders were related to pagan holidays, the lunar calendar, and Wiccan rituals. Yay. Jeff proceeded to correspond with Deborah, Deborah Jarvis, the mother um, of the victim, Christine Milik, and investigative journalists such as Bill Proctor and Heather Catalo in 2010. He claimed that he was part of a team of a dozen investigators involving, involved in the case and could identify the perpetrator of the crimes. But he refused to indicate which law enforcement division he worked for, of course. So to me, I'm sorry, but this guy seems like a little either batshit or part of it and trying to see what everybody knows. Yeah. He claimed to have... Yeah, he claimed to have invested... 10,000 hours into this investigation for several years, but was reluctant to release any of his results as he doubted the competence of Wayne and Oakland County investigators. In a re press release email, he indicated possible meddling by Cooper and other reasons as to why he had not made this investigation public. According to Paul Hughes, an attorney representing Jarvis, um, his just investigation discovered the murderer. However, according to Hughes, Jeff refused to identify the culprit unless the authorities divulged crucial information, which Jeff requested during the initial interviews. So give me the Allen letter or you'll never find the murderer, basically. Huh. Which again, seems odd to me. Why are you so intent on this freaking letter? Yeah. <laughs> if you really wanted to catch them after putting in that many hours, you wouldn't be holding the supposed information hostage. Right. Absolutely. If it was like eating you alive, you would want this person to be caught. Jeff wanted to positively confirm the identity of his suspect using the police evidence before proceeding further. Well, give them the evidence that you have and they can confirm it. Dipshit. Yeah. The fuck? Exactly. You're not the cop. Fuck off. <laughs> Sorry. People like that drive me nuts. Yeah. In 2012, Jeff presented his findings to a select group of Detroit journalists on Hughes's cell phone to preserve his anonymity. He insisted that this phone interview with Hughes was not to be recorded. He theorized that the killers were conducting wicked human sacrifice rituals coinciding with pagan celebrations or the lunar calendar. Right. According to Jeff, there was a total of approximately 11 to 16 victims, significantly more than the four officially confirmed. He claimed his team found a number of similarities 
among the cases that were highly unlikely to be purely coincidental. Based on his information, Hughes attempted a lawsuit against the Oakland County authorities for $100 million. Huh. Right. Citing mishandling of the investigation and demanding Cooper's resignation, the lawsuit alleged a cover-up, conspiracy, and, and obstruction. Hughes's website solicited donations and offered a copy of Jeff's report for a donation of $1,500. The families of the victims, as well as Cooper, claimed that Hughes and Jeff were attempting to profit on their distress. Correct. Agreed. The case was dismissed in March of 2012 for lack of evidence. And then in February 2019, the Investigation Discovery Channel aired a two-part, four-hour documentary about the kill the murders. And at this time, um, WXYZ-TV investigative reporter Heather, Heather Catalo announced that a key suspect, convicted child sex offender Arch Edward Sloan had failed a polygraph test when he was interviewed by the Oakland County Child Killer Task Force in 2010 and 2012. How a reporter can have this information is beyond me. But I digress. Yeah. I imagine they get told a lot of things and have resources, but... That's a little too much about the investigation. Um, yeah, that's odd. Back in 2012, new DNA technology found that Sloan's car contained hair with the same mitochondrial profile as evidence found on the victims. However, it is, again, not Sloan's. So there's, to me, it sounds like there's a few guys... And that they are trying to protect him. I hope they have some DNA evidence they can submit to the um, like the forensic genealogy stuff they've been doing this past few years. And I'm sorry, that was a long this one. Seems like <laughs> that was a long one, yeah. and it was quite all over the place. But I did the best I could. <laughs> I would love some forensic genealogy on that. That would be interesting yeah. if they could do that. Get some answers. Absolutely. All right. I have a, another yield UP murder. <laughs> in Matchwood in 1889, the murder of a woman named Molly Beveridge occurred. Matchwood is east of Lake Gojibik and about 30 miles south of Ontonagon on M28 in the western part of the Upper Peninsula. At the time of the murder, James Redpath, Maggie Flaherty, Duncan Beveridge, Molly Beveridge, and James McDonald shared a small house in Matchwood. It was just over 500 square feet, which would be, you know, cramped for that many people. Two couples and Fifth Wheel McDonald. The Beverages had just been married and James Redpath and Maggie Flaherty were unmarried but living together. It's super scandalous for that period of time. Very. The house was 
And this is where it's kind of odd. The house was built by McDonald, but later sold to Redpath. And there were rumors that Redpath didn't buy the home from McDonald, but won it in a poker game. <laughs> the couples partitioned off one end of the house into two eight by eight foot cubicles for sleeping. The beverages hung a curtain at the end of their cubicle for privacy, but Redpath and Flaherty apparently uh, didn't want or need privacy because they didn't they didn't have a curtain up <laughs> or anything. You filthy couple. (laughs) (laughs) They said, look at me in all my glory. It's just, we're wide open. We can hear everything each couple is doing because there's just a curtain in a tiny house. Uh, McDonald bought property near where they were living and was planning on building a new house. He was a logger and offered his hanging services to Redpath in exchange for a place to live. And a cot was set up in the kitchen at night for McDonald. So you've got two couples with a curtain and the single man on a cot in the kitchen. (laughs) In spite of the congested living conditions, all seemed to be working out for McDonald and the young couples. The woman, as they did back in the day, took care of the household chores uh, but then they also assisted Redpath and Beverage in haying. So they were doing double duty, I'd say. However, on the night of November 11th, 1889, Molly Beverage was shot and killed, and Maggie Flaherty was seriously wounded. McDonald was held accountable. Duncan Beverage and James Redpath testified against McDonald at his trial, saying McDonald broke from his bedroom, aka the kitchen in the middle of the night, and began to wildly shoot, killing Molly Beveridge and severely wounding Flaherty. Duncan Beveridge and James Redpath easily convinced McDonald that he had committed the murders by telling McDonald he was sleepwalking when he did it. Because I, too, will sometimes shoot people in my sleep. Unless you're Selena Spooky Boo on uh, YouTube and TikTok, and then maybe who knows what you do in your sleep time. So a confused McDonald was easily tricked and agreed that he must have done it. Although he said he couldn't remember. (laughs) (laughs) You would kind of remember something like that. You, you would think, but they're like, no, you totally did it. You were sleepwalking. And so they gaslit him hard. There was no motive to the killing, and at the trial, McDonald's attorney used sleepwalking as his client's defense, but McDonald was convicted and sent to prison. In 1895, Jack McDonald was released from the Marquette Branch Prison after serving five years for the murder of Molly Beveridge. McDonald was released when new information came to light that McDonald was tricked into believing he committed the murder, when in reality... Beverage and Redpath were responsible for the killing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I could have I could have mm-hmm. guessed that a mile down the road. <laughs> in uh, in 1895, Flaherty told a new version of events that occurred in 1889. Five years after the murder, Flaherty, then 28, said that Duncan Beverage and James Redpath were the ones who killed Molly Beverage. 
According to Flaherty's new story, she was woken up at 2.30 in the morning by the sound of the beverages arguing. She heard Molly say, I'm going away, and when I go away, I'm going to fix you plenty. Flaherty said there was a pause, then the sound of footsteps, and then a gunshot. And there's just a curtain between you and this gunshot, so I would imagine you'd hear everything. Right. Um, Flaherty said when she entered the room, when she pushed pushed aside the curtain, (laughs) she saw Duncan Beveridge with a Winchester rifle in his hand standing near his wife's body. Beveridge saw Flaherty enter the room, aimed his gun at her, and fired, hitting her in the thigh with a life-threatening wound. Redpath heard the commotion. I would hope so. There's just a curtain. And rushed in to find one person dead and another seriously wounded. So, he sees Molly, sees his girlfriend, whatever she is, shot in the leg. Panicked, Redpath screamed at Beveridge, My God, Duncan, what have you done? The commotion woke McDonald, and he attempted to open the latch kitchen door. Beveridge yelled through the door that he was just shooting at some links through an open window. McDonald, for some reason, believed him and remained in his kitchen bedroom. <laughs> According to Flaherty, you just imagine you're shooting and then somebody goes, it's fine. And you just go, okay. No problem. Sure. There's nothing suspicious happening here. I will go back to bed. <laughs> According to Flaherty, Beverage and Redpath decided to pin the murder on McDonald. McDonald was then called out of the bedroom and told that he must have committed the crime, but he was probably sleepwalking when he did it. Oh, must have. <laughs> doubts. You, hey, did you see what you've done? Look at this. <laughs> uh, Beverage and Redpath then continued with the cover-up by putting the injured Flaherty into bed and threatened her to keep her mouth quiet. Flaherty kept quiet for years because she was afraid of retribution from Beverage and Redpath. I don't know if you can hear that, but shut up, train. (laughs) Jeez. It's not that close to me, and I can hear it as if they're right outside. (laughs) Her gunshot wound resulted in a broken leg and required a year's hospitalization in Marquette. Why Flaherty came forward with a new version of the murder is not clear. After she was released from the hospital, she rejoined Redpath and Beverage in Menominee in their latest business venture, a brothel. (laughs) More of those were needed at the time. Sources said that Maggie Flaherty was drunk much of the time and caused trouble with the other working girls. Apparently, Beverage got tired of her antics and told Redpath to get rid of her. Flaherty said Redpath beat her badly and she was immobile for several weeks. When somewhat recovered, she fled. I'm going to go punch that train conductor (laughs) right in the face. (laughs) He wants everyone to know that he's coming. I I was just about to make a terrible sex joke about that one too, but... (laughs) As a listener, I'm sure you can imagine. (laughs) Just put your own in there. Um. (laughs) Flaherty married a lumberman from 
northern Wisconsin in 1895, and that was when she came forward with a new version of the Beverage murder. Based on information, both Beverage and Redpath were arrested and jailed in Ontonagon. While in the Ontonagon jail, the worst fire in the town's history occurred. In the summer of 1896, it was so dry that by August, even swamps were drying up. The Diamond Match Company had stacks of wood, amounts of sawdust everywhere, and with no rain and high temperatures, it was basically a catastrophe waiting to happen. Yeah. 75 mile per hour winds fanned the sawmills' tinder dry wood piles. So it's blowing sawdust and everything everywhere. And soon the entire village was consumed in flames. The fire's heat was felt half a mile away. Oh, wow. After a few hours, the town was decimated. More than 344 village buildings had burned down. Beverage and Redpath were locked in jail at the time, and the keys were gone because Sheriff Corbett was off to another part of the county when, uh, with the Selkies. His wife was left in charge, but at first was unaware she didn't have the keys. During the height of the fire, Redpath's new girlfriend went to the jail. Was she also part of the brothel? (laughs) I can't imagine. He treated her well, but she still came to his rescue. She knew they were locked up and feared they would be left to die. Mrs. Corbett then found another set of keys and Beverage and Redpath were released. Mrs. Corbett had to get her children and infirm mother to safety, but the street was thick with smoke and fire. Redpath helped the children while Beverage towed the elder Corbett to Pigeon Hill. Neither man fled after saving the Corbetts, and both men turned themselves in the next day. Their good acts worked in their favor when they went before a judge. So even though apparently they killed someone, you saved the sheriff's family and uh, you get some benefits. With Ontonagon Jail burned to the ground, Redpath and Beverage were transferred to the Bessemer Jail in Gojiba County. The trial for the murder of Molly Beverage was held on February 23rd, 1897. Although Redpath was part of the cover-up plan, he was granted immunity to testify against Beverage. Judge Hare advised the jury that even though Flaherty, the primary prosecution witness, had a sordid history, her past questionable behavior was not to be considered when evaluating her testimony. So let's discredit the woman who was shot and scared. Right. But but the guys who also did not have a good history and ran a brothel where apparently uh, better than her. They're men. Yeah. So, you know, him saying that (laughs) probably led the jury to doubt her just by saying those things. Like, I know she's a horrible woman with a terrible history, but you should listen to her about this. (laughs) Sure, that that helped, judge. (laughs) On March 4th, they concluded that Duncan Beveridge was not guilty and he was set free. One man served five years in prison for a murder that he, let's face it, probably did not, didn't commit. And one was let go for a murder that he likely committed. 
bikes. That's that's fun. It's fun history. Yikes on bikes. <laughs> Don't listen to the whore. Listen to this man who, who runs whorehouses. In his curtain bedroom. Don't listen to the whore. Listen to the man who sells them. Yeah, exactly. What the frick? So I wasn't happy reading that one. Yeah, definitely not. And that was another murder in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And <laughs> I think eventually I will get through the whole book within this podcast. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I I just, it's some good UP information in there, you know? And I feel like I am running out of cases. <laughs> uh, we get some more modern ones. We'll just start digging through Otis and see what we can find. Right. <laughs> like, what did this person do? Let me look up their information. <laughs> Very much that. I'll be sitting outside of courthouses like a reporter. <laughs> My pen and pad. Don't mind me. This is podcast related. May, may I ask you a question? <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, thank you all for listening to tonight's episode. Be safe out there and watch out for the crazies. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. The music titled Teller of the Tales was provided by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incomtech.filmmusic.io.